This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan. Today, we're chatting with Penny Henley. Penny, along with her husband Phil, daughter Nicole and son-in-law Dan, run Emu Logic, based near Turrawina in central west New South Wales. This 1,200-acre property runs cattle, sheep, goats and emus. There was a lot of interest in the emus from tourists driving past the property, so the Henleys started their own on-farm store, which sells emu products and educates visitors on agriculture in the region. In this episode, you'll hear that Penny is an active member of her local Lancag group and is passionate about protecting native wildlife and controlling pest animals. Penny discusses with us the importance of working as a group to control pest species, and she's seen an increase in native species in the years where they've organised group activities. Penny also shares her experience in controlling pigs, foxes, cats, and her passion for agriculture and the natural environment. Local Land Services Mixed Farming Advisor, Callan Thompson, caught up with Penny at Emu Logic and was fortunate enough to try some of the emu jerky while he was there. Today I'm speaking with Penny Henley from Emu Logic and I'm hoping to cover two broad topics. Most of our listeners are either grain or livestock farmers and a lot of them are sheep and cattle producers and I don't think we've had a yarn to anyone who farms emus. So that's something that I really want to cover. And the second thing is your experience managing pest animals on your farm. So thanks Penny for taking your time today. Tell me a bit about your farm. We've got 1,200 acres here in the western side of the Warrumbungle National Park. Only livestock, we don't crop at all. So it's sheep, cattle, some goats and emus. Yeah, I think Turrawin is a beautiful part of the Central West. Can you give me a bit of background as to the style of country that we're on? We're on the eastern side of the road, which runs along the side of the mountain. So it's more hilly country. There's some good cropping patches up the valleys. Big saw range. And then on the other side of the road is basically flattens out and it's mainly cropping all the way to Galaganbone and further. And I know your family's involved in the business. How does everybody fit in? Even though it's only small acreage, the emu is more intensive and the daughter came home, come back to the farm with her husband. So they help us on the farm. The big part of what they do is the website and the internet side of the business for the emus. So I don't think a lot of our listeners will have a great understanding about the products of emus. What are the end products? Emus only really farmed for the oil. Not so much only farm for, but emus are farmed because they've got anti-inflammatory oil. They're at least three to four years old before you process them. That means after three to four years, you only get about 10 kilos of meat and feathers. When you have hand-raised and hand-fed them through for those three to four years, you would never cover your costs. So it's all about the anti-inflammatory oil. That's the main product, but we do use all parts of the bird. And the emu jerky and the meat side is once again the son-in-law and the daughter's side of the business. They've developed a jerky which is a bit moorish, so they can sell it very easily. Okay, a good value add. Yeah. And you have an on-farm store that sells products as well? It sort of grew with people when they sealed the road into the National Park. People started coming up the driveway saying, have you got any emu meat? Have you got any emu oil? 
because when into emus we've cheated and we fenced the flat country with no hills, no gullies, no creeks, and that just happened to be down to the road in front of a house here. And it sort of just grew over the years with more and more people coming in. So we built shed here a few years back and in here we have the emu products for sale. But half the shed is actually showing people about farming in the area. So there's a bit about cropping production and cattle production and sheep production. We get a lot of people who think they dropped off the planet when they come over this side of the mountain. <laughs> so good on them for coming. So we're just trying to show them where their food comes from. Awesome. I think a lot of people would be interested to know how the emus are managed there's a lot involved in an emu. You've got to think of them as giant chickens. So a lot of the management is like free-range chooks, I assume. Emus lay April till September. So come April, you start looking for eggs and think, when are they going to start? They lay half an hour before dark and half an hour after daylight. The night thing. So we go around in the morning and pick up all the eggs and bring them in. And then all the chicks that we have hatch through the incubator. And then they're hand-raised through sheds until they lose their stripes at three months and then they'll go out the paddock. But as I said, they're not mature for three years. So it's a long-term process. So product-wise, you have to think, in three years' time, how many birds might we need? It's a long-term, and that's a real big guessing game. When those emus go out into the paddock, are they going out with everybody else? Are they all mobbed together? We actually try to keep the ages separate. We do have our breeder paddock, so anybody who's short, fat, dumpy, good personality, non-aggressive in the breed season, they can end up in the breeder paddock because we're trying to breed non-aggressive birds, chilled out birds. You don't want wild livestock, and that's what we're trying to do with the emus. And we don't want tall, lanky supermodels. We want short, fat, dumpy birds with lots of oil and meat. So they do look different to the wild birds, because we've been doing it for 25-odd years. I imagine the fencing has to be a little bit different to a sheep and cattle property. We're controlled by national parks. All our fences do come under the national park regulations of height, area covered and space in between posts. So National Parks is the regulation on what our fences are. Penny, you mentioned that tourism sort of kicked off from people being interested, but I noticed you've got a really good website and you do have a social media and a YouTube presence. Is that purely for marketing or how does that evolve? The website developed for the marketing of the product so that people could buy online. It actually started with the fires up in the mountains people were asking how we're getting on. So our Daniel son who lives in Dubbo been on the fire line and set up a Facebook page. It isn't so much marketing, but more just letting people know what we're doing on the farm. I suppose we keep being told it should be directed towards marketing, but it's more of an education, just letting people know when the chicks are hatching, what they're up to, things like that. The YouTube's a whole different story. During the drought was putting cameras on the water troughs. And he put one up on the Facebook and it went viral. So the ABC picked up on it. He had interviews all around the world, actually, Al Jazeera and a lot of European ones. And some people remember it. It's the echidna at the water trough during the drought. From that, we were told, because we got nothing from it, even though it went viral, to have our own YouTube page. So Phil's continued with that. And even now, he's still putting it on the dam with all the different birds and animals. It's got nothing to do with the emu side of the business. It's all about the wildlife on the farm. So a lot of people are having fun watching egrets catch mice or yabbies or fighting or things like that. So, yeah, he's had a lot of fun. It's his stress relief. Everybody needs a hobby. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I've actually watched a few of them in there. Yeah, there's some really cool imagery on there, stuff that you wouldn't see if you're just standing out in a paddock. And Penny, you mentioned that a lot of what you do is about educating visitors and tourists. How important do you think that is for people in rural areas to promote what we do? I think it's very important. There's a minority population who's causing problems. 
and they're the type who it's all in the heart, not in the head. What we're hoping to do is let people know and educate, give the other side of the point of view to what people read on social media, what farmers are up to and how we're horrible to the land. Because there's a fair chunk of us who really do care about our land, care about the native wildlife, the native flora and fauna. Yeah, we're looking after it. We're only here for a while, so we want to leave it in good condition and pass on. Not all farmers are like that, but for those of us who are, I think it's pretty important. And we do get a lot of people through here. They're vegans. They don't like us farming animals, but we try to show them the other side of the coin. Our biosecurity officer, Will Thorncraft, when I mentioned I was coming out to talk to you, he said, I can't come out and talk to you without talking about the land care group and the good work that's being done from pest animal control in that space. And he tells me you're the driving force behind the Warrumbungle Land Care Group. Can you tell me why the group was set up? The land care group has existed for nearly 30 years, I'd say. It was a group before Landcare existed. It came from some local producers who were concerned about two main issues. One was the national park and the number of kangaroos in there and also on their properties and what they could do about controlling the numbers. It's just like any animal. If you've got too many of them, then they can eat you out of your livelihood. And the other big one was Blue Heliotrope and they were a driving force behind bringing a biological control into Australia to try to control the Blue Heliotrope, which has actually taken over the Warrumbungle National Park and now the wildlife in there struggle to find food because there's just Blue Heliotrope everywhere. Yeah, so the work that they did, we're actually doing some work at the moment. The work that they did all those years ago sort of funded, so it's got a lot of legacy. And one of the big focus now is around pest animals from what I understand. Yeah, I guess my pet peeve is pest animals. So feral pigs, feral cats, I hate feral cats, and of course foxes. The big focus, I guess because it's an easy one to work with the LLS on, and the LLS has been wonderfully supportive with the baiting programs and information. We've had a few field days here on different things as well. It's a good partnership. I guess whoever's secretary next in years to come, their pet peeve might be weeds, but mine is feral animals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You mentioned pigs, cats and foxes. What sort of damage are they doing? The pigs, yeah, they just rip up the country. One of the members years ago had funding and he actually did a baiting program in conjunction with farmers, keeping bait stations going. And like he said, he was working at the National Park and there's one patch in the National Park he went through and it was just ground orchids, this little valley. And he came back horrified next time. He said the pigs have been in there and just ripped up all the ground orchids. So they harass the native environment as well as getting into people's crops. And by all accounts, they like canola. So they smash the canola crops. So a lot of farmers, the cropping guys, are keen along with us on, on the mountains here to control the pigs. They move a lot of disease around as well. They do a lot of damage, be it water, be it your plants, be it your ground, be it your diseases. I think... There was some work done back in the 80s and 90s on killing pigs and seeing what was in their stomach and doing DNA tests on their scats in the pilliga. And they found that they're actually killing a lot of reptiles and small mammals. And when you look at some of the logs that they can turn over and uproot and get into, they don't miss too much, do they? Nah, they're a force to be reckoned with, yeah. Phil on his YouTube of some pigs that we'd trap and the wedge tail eagles, we're feeding the wedge tail eagles for these I did see pigs. that one, yeah. <laughs> We've been doing some pig trapping at home and we've got trail cams out and the boys I've got two young sons and they love watching it especially if someone's around to do the voice for the pigs <laughs> as they're uh, eating away but yeah. it's a bit of a digression and so 
foxes and cats, I guess they're damaging a lot of your native populations of birds and mammals. Oh, absolutely. The foxes, of course, anybody of us with poultry, sheep or goats, they'll take a lot of livestock. So they will knock your livestock around. You certainly notice if this fox population goes up, it's... I was surprised we've actually got plovers out in the back paddock. Being a ground nesting bird, good on them. (laughs) I didn't think they would have been there, but we found some of them last year. So that was brilliant. When we were doing the coordinator fox baiting years ago in a big scale, you'd actually see blue tongue lizards on the side of the road. We actually found, we were out spotlighting one night and got stuck on a bank and had to walk home. And we found little dunnets native marsupials running around so we didn't even know we had them so we put a big pile of rocks there so that they had a better home for the fire but since the coordinator baiting's been down in particular the last couple of years with COVID and that you very rarely see a blue tongue lizard or anything but it does make a difference if the fox numbers are down because they got to eat and it's a bit like the feral cats and feral cats can climb trees so they get the birds up the trees as well as the ones on the ground. I've heard foxes can be pretty solid on dung beetles even. Yeah, I believe that. And the interesting thing is here, I've been involved in trying to trap dumb beetles for Armadale Uni. And we just not find any dumb beetles around the house here in the area. There is patches on our place where you'll see the dun buried from the cattle. But this front part of the portion of the property, there's just no dumb beetle pop. And yet we thought we had the foxes pretty much under control so I don't know if it's foxes or the drought but they give the dumb beetles a hard time so another reason to get rid of them. You mentioned that you've done group baiting for both pigs and foxes. As a group what sort of control methods are working well? I think it needs to be combinations. We only trap, we don't let people chase them around with dogs or here and we haven't baited. I think the ones who have baited they still need to trap so it needs to be coordinated. There is a, quite a number of us in the group who just trap though. With the cameras, you can see who's around and they say you don't get them all, but if you're persistent enough, you can get them all and you know you've got them all. And I'm not fond of baits to the degree that I think it's a savage way for something to die. I'd much rather have a quick bullet than <laughs> a bait. <laughs> but yeah, so for our group in particular, because we're not talking mobs of hundreds and hundreds of pigs, mainly the traps, but heck, if you had those mobs of hundreds of pigs, you haven't got a lot of choices. You'd have to bait. But we're fortunate at this stage we haven't had to do that. Yeah. I helped Will, again, our biosecurity officer who was in this area, do a video on trapping. And I think it's still our highest hitting YouTube video from Central West's yeah. YouTube channel. One of the things I took from that is just really having to be patient. It's not just about putting a trap out there and throwing some grain in and hoping for the best. There's a lot of free feeding, a lot of time. Well, we have traps which we don't actually free feed ours. They just go, we have a lot of grain around and we're swinging door. Sometimes you might get half of them and sometimes they just keep piling in the trap and you go, really? (laughs) (laughs) It's a very time-consuming way of doing it and that's why some people might be put off it, but you just have to be persistent. We've got permanent traps in some patches and other traps we have within the land care group too that we can move around and different people use them and you find the pigs trailing through and you stick a trap on it and see what you get. And the trail cams, I think they're a game changer for all pest animal control. I'm a big fan of the trail cams. Have you had much experience? Mainly Phil has. <laughs> but yeah, no, they're great. Well, even security cameras, I've picked up on the security cameras around here. We've got a fox trotted through five o'clock yesterday morning. Cameras in general are quite handy to know what you've got round. 
well, the fox, I had a fair idea we had him because I could see his footprints in the mud, but trial cameras are great. You know what you're trying to trap and how many. That's the big one. Particularly the pigs, you know if you've got a mob of two old bulls and mum with a pile of sows. Unless you're a good tracker, reading footprints, but at least you know how many you've got. And once you've trapped, you've got any left over. As you say, it's not something you do over a couple of days. It might take you a couple of weeks to get all the mobs. Yeah, I've definitely seen where pigs, some odd sows have just come with a group of suckers and the suckers have hoed into the grain but the sows sort of just stood back. And I've heard people say that they've got video of sows who have actually pushed their suckers away from the poisoned grain, so not a silly animal, are they? And the big one with the trial cameras too is like when, going back to Phil's video of the water trough, which kicked off his YouTube site, we didn't even know we had pigs visiting at that stage. And a couple of pigs came in, jumped in the water trough, had a swim and left, and we go, ah, we thought they were sheep tracks. (laughs) We didn't realise we had pigs in that paddock at that stage. They're good to have just out there to know if you've got them and not even realise you have them. How are you controlling cats? Mainly trapping. Away from the house here, I find I've got a double-ended trap. And if you put it somewhere where there's human, around the sheds here, they're easy to trap. To the degree that you just put it in amongst other gates and that. And it's just part of the furniture. And put a bit of bait in there. Out the paddock's a bit trickier. You can put it along fence lines or gates or if you've got a rolled up bit of wire or near a water trough. To the degree that with a cat, you've got to leave it there for months, almost. It becomes part of the furniture room because they're a bit harder to get. Back in middle of September to the middle of October, we actually got 27 cats in 31 days. And that's around the shed here in the house. The dogs were putting them up trees twice a day. And then you'd have a day or two without a cat and you think, ah, oh, got rid of them. And then the next day there's one in the trap or the dogs get another one and put it up a tree. It was just horrendous. But now we're down to one a week. And you need to find something that they really want. And every cat's different. We had one on the water trough out there that Phil was videoing on during the drought. We did catch one of them, but there was another one that Phil even put sardines along the edge of the water trough and he stepped over the sardines to have a drink. And most cats you can catch on something smelly like that. And we never found out what he would like, so he's still out there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We got a few others, never got that one particular cat. And so I imagine it would be easier just to manage the pests on your own farm but you're working with a group. What's the benefit of working in that group situation? Working in a group situation, it's essential. There's well documented how far foxes will travel. Just because the fox which came around the house here the other night doesn't mean to say he lives here. I've seen footprints come through our front gate. And I don't know where he's coming from, probably tracking down the road to across a couple of neighbours. So it's essential. And pigs, they travel in the summer. They camp up on the edge of the mountains where it's cool and they track through out to the guys for the crops. It's essential. They're not just on your place. They're everywhere. And cats might be a little bit different, but they still breed up and then they go spread out into the neighbours and everywhere too. The bigger the area you've got working together, it makes such a difference. We've found that with foxes. When we had the money to supplement with Rodney doing the coordinator bait and then people doing the baits in between, you didn't have to worry about shutting your gates on your chooks of a night. We just never saw a fox. It was wonderful. Now, if you miss it, well, (laughs) you lose poultry. We were talking earlier and you mentioned that through the drought, the group took on a new purpose. Can you tell me about that? More just keeping in contact with each other, being support, just someone to talk to. We'd do our fox bait days and turn up. We always make it first up in the morning before you go out the paddock and get lost into your jobs. So we'd always be here in the shed and have a cup of tea and the baits were at nine o'clock but they'd leave at 12 o'clock after sitting down just catching up with the neighbours that you haven't seen because everybody's so busy. 
droughts are very time consuming and all encompassing on a farm and so yeah no it was just really good excuse for people to sit down and have a cuppa if they could and talk about something other than droughts at times or share ideas if that was the way it was be. So I know you and Phil have been pioneers in the emu industry in Australia have you got any advice for other producers who are looking to get involved in a new emerging industry? Don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're in, in the early years and we're still in it. And that's only because Phil's dogged persistent that people saying that the oil helps them. Hindsight, we shouldn't have, we wouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> but once again, on a small property like this, you know, couldn't make a living out of just sheep or just cattle or cropping. So as for an emerging industry... You really need to, I'd sit back and just see if the industry got going actually (laughs) and make sure that the markets are there at the end of it. We got in it thinking that it had gone through the highs and lows and they had the marketing sorted out, but it turned out the industry didn't. Like this industry still, if you have to vertically integrate like we have with the younger generation taking on the marketing. Phil and I worry about the breeding and the growing out of the birds and Dan and Nicole are more focused on the end product, which is great because you can't do everything. Farmers try to, but you can't. <laughs> and marketing and all that's a different skill. And I guess it's a matter of scale too, isn't it? You've got looking for markets, trying to fill markets. There's so much going on for one small family business to manage. Oh, absolutely. Two people couldn't do it and you can't afford to employ anybody. It's like any business. Like If you go right through from breeding to manufacture to sales, there's somebody in each section of that to do the job properly. It's very time consuming. And because it's not an industry where we can make a living out of just emus, we've still got sheep and cattle. So we've still got the management of the land as well as the livestock. And Phil just went off to help the neighbour with harvest. There's a bit of extra income as well. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They're still off can't farm income. So I guess it's something that you're very passionate about and it lets you be here in an environment that you enjoy and, again, very passionate about protecting and caring for and sharing that message with, with our consumers and the people that buy our products and have a lot of say in what we do as a day-to-day basis. Yeah, it's part of the mix. And during the busy season, we've got lots of people coming and going. It's interesting, the different people we get through here. There's some fascinating people come through and it's fun to talk to them about what we do. We've had a lot of film crews here over the years. That's been a bit of fun. It's in the mix of the sheep and cattle, but quite frankly, I'd still rather be just running sheep or cattle. (laughs) (laughs) A lot less stressful. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about the film crew? We've done 15 different types of filming here, documentaries. We've done one ad. We were involved in one ad. We supplied the eggs for the meerkat ad, which they collected the emu eggs. So we've done an ad. Been involved (laughs) in an ad. There's been a few short movies, nothing major. We've had the morning show was here, breakfast morning show. Amazing Race was here last year or a year before, whenever it was. Done the news. Don't know. (laughs) It adds up. Very good. So... Now it's been interesting. Thanks so much for your time today. It's been really interesting and I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot out of it. Thank you for coming out and finding out what my mongrels are up to. Thank you, group. Bye. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. 
hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narrowly Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time. 